Sophie, what's happened here? God, I don't even know where to start. Well, Willow's clearly been abusing the magic. She has. She was, and I barely even noticed. Giles, everything's just been so... Xander left Anya at the altar, and Anya's a vengeance demon again. Dawn's a total klepto. Money's been so tight that I've been slinging burgers at the Double Meat Palace, and, and I've been sleeping with Spike. I just got my taxes done. That was a weight off my shoulders. Yes. Yeah. I don't want to do mine, but I need <laughs> Yeah. Oh, God. I was putting it off, and it's it's just do it. It's like taking the Band-Aid off, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, I was dreading it, and then I'm, but I'm glad I went ahead and got it over with. Hey, it's easier when you're young and poor. Remember that? <laughs> I know. Well, I'm and you're like, dead. I got a refund. Now I'm just old and poor. <laughs> yeah i know i used to always look forward to that it's like man i ain't getting a fucking refund now but uh <coughs> yeah other, it was a good day i um um got a book i've been wanting for months and yeah. i just went yeah i couldn't like it's called ghost masters and it's the definitive reference on the spook shows it went out of print in like 92 it's never been reprinted and you'll never see it on any you know amazon ebay all that it's always 100 bucks so i said fuck it went ahead and paid the 100 you did it (laughs) yeah and just because i hadn't i've seen it one time go for 20 dollars, and that's while i was sleeping (laughs) I missed that one, so I went ahead and did it. Sleeping, yeah, and um, <laughs> um, oh yeah. Also, they uh, uh, the Dickies reissue coming out of the Killer Clowns EP, mm-hmm. and I got that. So, right. a- <laughs> I have been broke. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> 
which isn't always the case, but I have been broke this month. Yeah. Yeah. That's. That eh, happens. It's tough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, well, they're. Eh. No, it just sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm still broke, though. I shouldn't be buying anything. To be paid on stuff. You're living. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let me let me let me share this account. Let me see where it's okay. from since I didn't write it down. It's from uh, Interdimensional Encounters. Oh. By Conrad Bauer. You ready? Yeah. Okay. All right. Um. Okay. This this story began one night in the fall of 1951 when Cornelio, then in sixth grade, was visited one night by a phantom-like figure who he described as being a beautiful girl dressed in white with long blonde hair. The figure was a bit uh, a bit like an ordinary person, but Cornelio knew that the shimmering floating form before him was not human at all. The girl spoke with Cornelio, not verbally, but directly into his mind. After discussing various subjects, the girl reached out and took his hand and Cornelio felt suddenly transported to another realm. According to him, when it was over, he didn't remember all the details, but he went home and didn't tell anyone what had happened. The one thing that definitely did stick with him, however, was that whatever dimension he traveled to when he became invisible to everyone else, while he was there, he had the sinking feeling, not that the world he'd left behind was unreal, but rather that he himself was no longer real. He also apparently did not need any form of nourishment. When not exploring outer dimensions, Cornelio also had unlimited range within our own reality. And he discussed how he and the ghostly girl could appear almost anywhere they wished. He claimed to have sat in at movies without paying <laughs> to catch the... <laughs> cool kid right to catch the latest feature films while he remained invisible to the other patrons he said that they also traveled to various cities and at one point even visited an international fair but although he was invisible to those around him when on these journeys his absence from school alerted his teachers that something was wrong they notified that the child's parents, and initially it was believed that he was simply playing hooky. They supposed he was going somewhere else during the day instead of school, but they were in for a surprise because now, even under close supervision, Cornelia would vanish right in the middle of class. That's crazy. <laughs> According to Cornelio, he would just be sitting there and the interdimensional girl would drop down from the ceiling or float through the walls. Cornelia was the only one who could see her, but once she took his hand and he suddenly winked out of existence, his classmates were 
cued in that they all just stepped into the twilight zone. Cornelia would recall taking the girl's hand and hearing his peers shout in surprise, Cornelia is gone. <laughs> it seems that as soon as this entity took his hand, he completely vanished from their sight as if his consciousness had been shifted to another dimension that we do not normally experience. Cornelio explained that as soon as he took the girl's hand, she would lead him right through the walls, doors or windows, and they would pass through solid objects with no effort. In our world, there would be several exciting reports from students and teachers about this kid simply vanishing before their eyes. Minutes later, it would then be reported that Cornelia had been spotted somewhere else several miles away. Cornelia's family, meanwhile, were just desperate to keep their son in one place. At night, they would lock all the doors and keep the windows shut, but it didn't help. All it took was one visit from Cornelia's interdimensional friend and all bets were off. According to Cornelio, I kept on seeing the girl and I was able to go out with her despite the closed doors. Tired of finding their son wandering down the street in the middle of the night, his worried parents were at a loss. Unsure of what to do, they sent him to a psychologist. No, they sent him for a psychological assessment to have him checked out. The psychiatrist informed the family that there was nothing wrong with Cornelia's mental state. They also had him visited by a priest whether it was the priest, the doctors, or by Cornelia's own choice, as far as anyone knows, the visitations ended. Per perhaps he somehow managed to close his mind to the interdimensional phantom that had invaded his world. Whatever the case may be, he stopped disappearing. Instead, he lived the rest of his life as a normal person. He finished school, got a job, got married, and started a family of his own. Like so many others, however, he would never forget his experiences crossing the threshold between dimensions. This strange series of events that took place in his youth would indeed stick with him for the rest of his life. Isn't that crazy? And that took place in the 50s. And it's Cornelio Corsa, Closa, Cornelio Closa. And he was from where? The Philippines. Wow, that's great. Wild. <laughs> I read that. I'm like, that is wild. <laughs> I mean, how many of us as kid, kids would have liked to be able to disappear? <laughs> 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 I know. It's so, so many of these stories. Um, I'm just in the, I end up like, lucky. <laughs> <laughs> It's some of them just seem really cool. All right, I I wanted to talk a little bit about something I discovered, which I thought was really cool. Mm -hmm. Um, so I've been diving deep into the Bigfoot movies. And, okay. Um. You know, of course, they started in the 70s, and so I'm trying to watch all those before I go on to the new ones. But um, 
I found out about this one. It's called Revenge of Bigfoot, 1979. Okay. And I watched it, and it was fucking great. I loved it. Really it was good. Fun. Really good and funny, and and adorable. Just a fun, a good, weird family movie. You know, low budget as hell. Right. The funny thing about this movie is, and I'm also on the lookout for a poster. They don't pop up very often, but they do pop up. But the um, search the poster for this; it's amazing. Okay. So, Revenge of Bigfoot, 1979, and here's the plot. It's um, uh, an Indian moves in with a friendly rancher, and local bigot tries to run the Indian out of the town. Mm. A Bigfoot monster gets in his way. So, so this, um, I mean, the very first scene, the Indian moves in, the Native American guy moves into a new town. And meets a rancher who's really cool. And he's like, yeah, if you, you know, um, if you need work, you can live and work here mm-hmm. with us. And, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out. And so that this friendship happens and um, this guy's helping the rancher, you know. And um, <laughs> right away, this fucking goofy bastard. This perfect redneck character up and was like, there ain't going to be no fucking engines in my town. You know, so he's, he's all about trying to run this one guy, the the one guy out of town. And, and and it's so ridiculous. And everybody's just like, fuck off, you know? And, um, I, I like that part of the movie. I don't, it's really, (laughs) it's really funny to me, but, um, um, so anyway, while this is going on, the Bigfoot, there's a Bigfoot going around terrorizing everybody, breaking windows, and then er, like everybody's seeing it, you know, it, it comes by houses and uh, breaks stuff, steals chickens and stuff like that. And the, the, the funny, th- so here's a little bit of trivia about this movie, because you, there is no complete print of the movie. It's lost. There, somebody who was in the movie, an extra, had a one copy of the movie and put it up on YouTube, but it's incomplete. It's missing the ending. So it's only like an hour of it. It's almost all of it, but it's still missing some. And and nobody has. uh, uh, If there, I'm sure there's a print out there somewhere, but it hasn't been released yet. And uh, um, it's. And this stuff, anybody who knows me knows I love movies and I love low budget exploitation like movies. And there really is still stuff out there undiscovered, you know? (laughs) Right. And, uh, and this is a perfect example, but, um, yeah, so it was, it was, um, filmed in 1978 in Arkansas and Texas and it was released in 79 and um, I actually found a newspaper ad for it. Nice. Uh, one, so it, it was shown in North Carolina. And um, I let me just share one of the comments on mm-hmm. YouTube. This is how much people love this movie. 
I have been searching for this film since I was a kid, nearly 15 years. At least once or twice a year, I search online to see if a copy has surfaced. I'm a huge fan and collector of Bigfoot films, especially from this era. This is fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) I agree that it would be well worth it to try and repair your tape if possible. Thank you so much for sharing this truly historical for the sake of preservation. You've done us all a great service. If the film is ever fully restored, I'd be more than happy to pay for a copy. Me too. And, um, yeah, I just love this. And so go on YouTube and check it out. It's called Revenge of Bigfoot. I will. And so wait, so there's no end? There's no end. Oh, wow. So you're kind of last lake. Right. I think the guy guy who had the copy... um, um, somehow it was damaged and that's all he could recover was the first hour. And, um, yeah, I, I, I follow a lot of these, um, great, great companies that preserve these old movies and, and, uh, put them out and there's been no mention of this one. So I'm going to keep my eyes peeled and, um, maybe start a thread on it and see what. So happens. it truly is a rare gem. That- <laughs> totally. And it's actually good. the the best thing about it is I like it. It's not right. like a really horrible movie, you know. Right. Cute and, and uh, yeah. So that's that's kind of exciting. But, nice. Yeah. And it was good. The um um the Bigfoot's kind of scary, and I'm not gonna say it's like killer uh uh special effects it's it's totally not but it i don't know there's something about the way it's shot it's like oh that's kind of scary you know because <laughs> he's definitely aggressive you know? oh okay yeah <laughs> but yeah that's revenge of bigfoot nice <laughs> a rare gem a unicorn a total, <laughs> total diamond in the rough <laughs> nice all right, let me tell you about this. This is from Fate Magazine. It's actually from Fate, Stranger Than Fiction. I have a whole bunch of these books <laughs> that are collected from Fate Magazine. Um, and this book came out in 1967. So, all right, let's see. Do I want to skip any of this story? Um I'll just read it, I guess. In the fall of 1949, I was teaching school in Entiet, Washington. My fiance was working as a hired hand in an apple orchard up in up the valley, several miles from my school. And he also was taking correspondence courses for credit towards a master's degree. We saw each other only once or twice a week. The weather had turned cold before the apple harvest was completed and everyone worked long hours to save the crop, which made most of the regions living. Ray worked extra too, in addition to his studies, and he seemed tired and on edge one evening when he called me for a regular Saturday date. In no mood, even for a movie, Ray drove the car aimlessly for a while before he remarked, Maggie, who were you out with last Monday? I was surprised 
soiree, I wasn't out with anybody. I was home correcting papers. No, you weren't. Johnny saw you in town with somebody. Johnny was a friend of Ray's. I denied being with anybody else. It was not true, but Ray's jealous temper was aroused and nothing I could say convinced him. Finally, I lost my temper and we quarreled heatedly. It was still early when he left me at my door without even a good night. Okay. Alone in my apartment, my anger gradually cooled. Why couldn't he realize I loved him and would not even look in another man? I cried myself to sleep. And then I dreamed I was in an apple orchard walking up and down beneath the trees. I was weeping aloud with all the heartache and loneliness of the ages heaped upon me, it seemed. that The night was cold, but the coldness I felt was spiritual. I was alone in the universe. The night was completely black, but somehow I saw the trees as silver forms, complete in every detail of shadowless bark and leafless branch. The closeness of the trees comforted me. The noise of my alarm clock jarred me awake, but it was difficult to arouse myself from lethargy. The dream had seemed like reality. Daylight seemed like a dream. Weeks passed. When harvest was over, Ray got a job as a dishwasher in a hotel in the sleepy town that is Wenatchee in winter. Our dates continued. We had made up our quarrel, but something was missing. I no longer remember what started our next quarrel, but it was worse than the first. I had tried to be on guard against anything that might lead to another quarrel and self-recrimination added to my misery as I went to bed that night. Again, the apple orchard shone silver against the darkness and the cold of my dream. I walked up and down Love was far away and dead. The bare branches bent over me in silent sympathy. The alarm clock jolted me awake to the workday world. I dreamed often that winter and not always after a quarrel. The dream was always the same. The orchard with its silver trees, the cold, the loneliness. And always afterward, I adjusted to the objective world again with difficulty. One night... Toward spring, the dream was different. I was walking up and down as usual when I saw a man standing by a tree. He seemed like a shadow, dark against the silver tree, but his eyes held a light of their own. Brilliant, hard, they held me and drew me to him. I heard his voice deep and vibrant. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, I command you, Spirit, Get you gone from this orchard and never come back. With a violent wrench of breath, the, the, the breath seemed torn from me and I awoke in my own bed. The night was still dark around me. It was between midnight and dawn. After that, I had no more dreams. Ray and I were drifting apart, but I still clung to him even though he made me, he made my life miserable <laughs> with his unreasoning jealousy. Although I dream no more, now I had a violent headache, which never left me. My work began to suffer. I became increasingly irritable with my students, and they retaliated 
by becoming noisy and hard to manage. One day, the principal called me into his office. Margaret, you've got to pull yourself together. You've done a good job in your classes until just lately. You've let, you've let down and a teacher can't afford to let herself go. If you're having trouble of some sort, I'll, keep, I'll help if I can, but you can't keep on like this or I'll have to ask you to resign. Damn. <laughs> I wanted to complain of my headache, but realized that he would just send me to a doctor. I felt my problems were psychological and that straight, straightening things out with Ray would clear them up. That evening, however, I decided I needed professional help. If I had not been able to straighten things out with Ray all these months, I certainly could not do it now with extra anxiety for my job on my mind. So on, a, on Saturday in April, I sat in the outer office of the only psychologist in Wenatchee. When the receptionist beckoned me into the inner office, I was greeted by a pleasant, pleasant looking middle-aged man. There was something faintly familiar in his voice and as he began questioning me about my troubles. As I talked, he listened, frowning slightly. I found myself telling him about my recur recurring dreams. His face brightened with interest. Are you sure it was always the same orchard? I nodded. Do you have these dreams still, he asked. No, I replied, and described my final dream and the man who ordered me away from the orchard. It can't be possible. I don't believe it. He rose abruptly and turned to stare out the window. I saw he was tense and excited. Do you doubt me? He turned back to the desk with a wry smile. No, I don't doubt you. But I almost doubt myself. Whatever do you mean? Have you heard of astral projection, he asked. I nodded and he continued. Last fall, a woman came to me highly disturbed and said she was afraid she was losing her mind. Her husband owns a large apple orchard near where you teach. It seems the orchard was being haunted by a very noisy ghost. She was frightened and thought she was hearing things. The worst of it was it didn't occur every night or even regularly, just when she was especially upset or something. Two or three weeks would go by and everything would be quiet. Then in the night, shortly before midnight, an unearthly sobbing would begin and continue until dawn. The woman was perfectly healthy. I was able to help her with some of her problems, but the sobbing in the orchard continued. Finally, she insisted that I spend some time with her and her family to see if I could hear it, too. I didn't like the idea, but it was the only thing that would satisfy her. I was there every night for two solid weeks before the noises occurred. Then I understood what she was talking about. It was enough to unnerve anyone. I've been interested in psychic phenomena for years and never doubted that it was a real ghost. But now it seems I was wrong. I exercised you or your astral self from the orchard. Your headache results from your avenue of escape being cut off. Does this sound reasonable to you? I thought a minute, then nodded. Astral projection would explain my dreams, why my dreams had seemed so real and why it had been so hard to awaken afterward. After talks with this, with this doctor, 
my headache receded. And after several months, I was able to let Ray go. When we finally broke up, my headache left completely and it hadn't returned, nor have I dreamed since. So she haunted an orchard. <laughs> I mean, come on. Yeah. She haunted something. Those intense dreams were were real to somebody else too, you know what I mean? I love that. <laughs> uh, and again with the orchard. Lots of shit. Yeah. <laughs> but um yeah, I remember um one of the stories I told a while back, um where the guy um was astral traveling in sleep. Mm -hmm. And he remembers um, he was flying around somebody's house and they noticed him. Yes. It was like, what a head trip that would be, you know? Right. <laughs> right. Looking, looking out your door and there's somebody floating down. Who the is that in my house? <laughs> <laughs> like, who is that? We need to uh, start trying it. Yeah. And so our ghosts always go, right? I mean, yeah. Well, um, Maybe it's not a ghost. Yeah. Preston Dennett um, talks about it. He wrote a book on it. And um, there's a YouTube video where he goes into his background with it. And um, he started doing it and got to where he was like really good at it and was doing it almost every night. Right. Pretty wild. Right. Yeah. The way he talked about it is. Um, so intense it it seems like a drug experience mm -hmm. uh, but you're doing it yourself you're you know right i i don't think I, I mean i think it's one of those things it's like yeah of course it happens like there's no question about it and right. i think with a lot of people it happens um at random it happens spontaneously you know and they right like it did with that woman yeah. You know what I mean? She was upset about some stuff and then started having these weird dreams. Right. <laughs> that weren't dreams. Right. <laughs> yeah, I crazy. can't um, be sure. I had a dream. Uh, uh, there was a lot of weird shit going on at the time. I was taking a lot of acid. I was like 17. And um, um yeah, it was a strange time. And uh, my friend moved to Montana. Mm -hmm. And um, we still kept in touch. And um, one day I, I laid down and took a nap. And that wasn't something I usually did at 17. But I just got really tired and laid down and took a nap. And I went into this dream. And it was like, it wasn't a dream. It was like being in a place and everything was black and white with mm -hmm. like um, static, mm -hmm. like old TV static. And I'm in this basement and there's people sitting around like my age and there's a dog in there and the dog starts barking at me. Mm -hmm. And the people don't notice me at all. It's like I'm there, you know, right? can't see me, but the dog's freaking out. And it just went for a minute. It was my friend Andy was there. And uh, 
um, and then it just ended, but it was like, I was in this other place, um, seeing him. And I remember even calling him and asking him like, man, were you hanging out with some people? <laughs> and he said, yeah, but, but there really, there's no way for me to know. that was Right. That, right. Know. But it just seemed like you, you connected, like you got there. Like <laughs> I, That's like, this is a long time ago, so I, my memory is fuzzy with it, but I remember it was clear to me that that's what, who it was. It was Andy and that it was, mm-hmm. you know, so maybe, who knows? I don't know. Right. There's all kinds of shit happening back then. That's crazy though, but <laughs> I believe it. Yeah. I love the orchards. I love the orchards. Yeah, there's a lot happens, right? Big, Bigfoot likes the orchard. Yeah. <laughs> All right, yeah, I got good Bigfoot one. Okay. Okay. It's called the Albert Ostman story, and this is from the Bigfoot Files by Peter Gatilla. A frosty wind swept over western Canada's Lillooet Mountains as looming clouds drifted along the sky in thick, uneven masses. It was a typical spring day in 1924 as the Union Steamship Ferry arrived at Lund, British Columbia. When the young Swedish immigrant stepped from the gangplank, he stood for a moment and gazed at the mountains, their ridges blurred by the jagged points of endless rows of pine trees. Every now and then, a shifting wind arose and blew the treetops to and fro, giving the landscape a mysterious appearance as wet mist crept over the glades and meadows. Little did he realize he was about to embark on an adventure that would haunt him for the rest of his life until his death in 1975. It all began when Albert Osman heard about a lost gold mine somewhere in the vicinity of Tobla Inlet. A vast rock wilderness nestled deep in the northern estuary of the Strait of Georgia. A loner, Osman hoped he could find the hidden mine and return home a rich man. Anxious to get underway, he hired an Indian guide and set out by flatboat for the inlet. As they worked their way upward through choppy waters, the Indian told Osman about the legends his people believed about the mysterious Toba. The, the guy described the big people of the mountains and explained that a relative of his had seen one and measured its tracks of more than two feet in length. The Indian's dark, piercing eyes scanned the dusky countryside as he related his story. He said that many years earlier, an old prospector crashed through the swinging doors of a saloon and tossed a handful of gold nuggets at the barkeep and ordered drinks for everybody. Gamblers, drifters, and B-girls rushed to the side, hoping the mountain man would reveal the location of his seemingly bountiful gold strike. Time and time again, he disappeared into the wilderness, only to show up weeks later, leather bags bulging with glittering pebbles of gold. Mm -hmm. But the bee-whiskered recluse never had a chance to tell anybody about his secret bonanza. One day he wandered into the mountains and was never seen again. Ostman's Indian guide said that some believed the hairy giants of the mountains had captured the white man. 
Growing weary of the Indian strange tales, Ostman was relieved when they finally arrived at the head of the inlet and set up camp at the mouth of the creek. At high tide, the Indian departed, planning to return for Osman in three weeks. He glanced back worriedly at the lone camper, and at that moment, the wind seemed to gather special force as if the element shared his foreboding. Hmm. Later, Osman took his 3030 Winchester and an 80-pound pack and started hiking along a jagged trail into the mountains. After camping and prospecting for several days, he inched his way through a treacherous maze of canyons and made camp in a grove of cypress trees. As nightfall drew near, he pawed some rocks for a fireplace, prepared his dinner, and settled in for the night. Exhausted, he slept soundly, and that's when things began to happen. As he stirred from his niche the following morning, he had the oddest feeling something was wrong. He got up, looked around, and noticed that the camp had been disturbed, although nothing was missing. Probably a curious animal, he surmised. As the sun poured brilliantly into the camp, he collected his equipment and spent the rest of the day prospecting. The next morning, he was surprised that his visitor had returned. This time, his backpack had been turned upside down and some dry goods were missing. With not a single track to be found, Osman scratched his head in bewilderment. Climbing to a rock overlooking the campsite, he sat and waited the rest of the day, hoping his curious visitor would return, but nothing happened. At dusk, the surrounding slopes looked bare and wan as the sky darkened, and the air took on the scent of rain. Osman drove his prospecting pick into a tree took notice of how things were arranged in camp and wriggled into his sleeping bag, removing only his boots. He put his rifle into the bag, stuffed the boots in as far as possible, and waited. For several hours, he tried to stay awake, but the comfortable quiet of the cypress grove lulled him to sleep. Suddenly, Osman was jolted awake. Half dozed, he could only remember that he was on a prospecting trip and had been sleeping. Quickly gathering his senses, he realized that someone or something was carrying him out of the camp as he crouched helplessly in the bottom of his sleeping bag. He could not reach his knife to cut himself out because he was in a tight sitting position. Whatever it was, it walked with crashing footfalls, grunted, and seemed extremely powerful. The terrified man had no choice but to ride out the awful ordeal. He could feel the cans in his backpack thumping him on the back as they rattled in unison with the loping strides of his abductor. In a state of shock, he clutched his rifle and slumped weakly into the bottom of the bag. For hours, Ostman remained in the painful posture as his captor hauled him into the mountains. Could it be be one of what the Indians described as the big people? He did not believe it, but what could be strong enough to carry him nonstop for so long? In the darkness, Ostman sensed they were moving higher into the mountains, up, down, and onto ground level ground. Luckily, a small opening in the top of the bag allowed the frightened man to breathe, or he would have suffocated. Right. Reaching the end of the trek, Ostman was lowered to the ground, and at that moment heard an unintelligible chatter. The ground was sloped, and as the bag fell, he tumbled with it. 
head first downhill, coming to a bumpy stop. He poked out his head and tried to straighten his cramped legs. He was numb and unable to coordinate his movements. Looking around in the dim light of dawn, Osman was shocked. There standing around him were four incredible beasts that defied imagination. About his giant captors, from observations recorded nearly 40 years earlier and shared with Canadian Bigfoot researcher John Green, Osman gave the following details. The young fellow might have been between 11 and 18 years old, about 7 feet tall, and weighed about 300 pounds. His chest was about 50 or 55 inches, and his waist maybe 38 inches. He had wide jaws and a narrow forehead that sloped upward until the back of his head was about 4 or 5 inches higher than his forehead. The hair on each of their heads was about 6 inches long. The hair on the rest of their bodies was short and thick in places. The woman's hair was a bit longer on their heads and the hair on their foreheads had an upward turn like some women have. Women call them bangs. The older female could have been between 40 and 70 years old and was over seven feet tall. She was about 500 or 600 pounds. Mm -hmm. She had very wide hips and a goose-like walk. The male's eye teeth were longer than the rest of the teeth, but not long enough to be called tusk. The old man must have been near eight feet tall. He had a big barrel chest, a big hump on his back, and powerful shoulders. The biceps on the upper arm were enormous and tapered down to his elbows. His forearms were longer than common people have, but well-proportioned. His hands were wide, the palms long, broad, and hollow like a scoop. His fingers were short in proportion to the rest of his hand. His fingernails were like chisels. The only place they had no hair was inside their hands, on the soles of their feet, and on the upper part of the nose and eyelids. I never did see their ears. They were covered with hair hanging over them. For three days, Albert Osman remained the reluctant guest of a group of creatures he said looked like a family. An old man, an old lady, and two young ones, a boy and a girl. He later estimated that he had been initially initially carried nearly 25 miles in three hours. After several days, he knew they meant no harm and spent sleepless hours observing their habits. He made the best of the situation and finally attempted an escape after coaxing the old man to eat a box of snuff. (laughs) The resulting clamor over the gagging creature gave Osman a chance to flee. Without stopping, rifle in hand, he ran and stumbled down the precipitous slopes and eventually made his way to a logging camp where he collapsed from exhaustion. The story of Albert Osman remains a classic in the continuing saga of North America's Bigfoot. Did he make it all up for reasons known only to him, or did it really happen? The burly Swede died in 1975 in a rest home, having insisted for more than 50 years that every word of his abduction by the big people of the mountains was true. That's a great account. I love that account. And the detail. The detail and the the one part of the detail where he talks about the chatter. Mm-hmm. You know, he, this was the 1920s, and he's already bringing up the the samurai chatter. 
Right. And I always imagine being carried in a sleeping bag. That would freak me out. <laughs> Insane. That would freak me out. And they had bangs. Now I can't yeah. get that out of my head. I know. <laughs> now I can't get that out of my head. No, that's a great, that's a that's a classic. That's a good one. And the details. You can't beat the details. Yeah, it's great. That's a that's a that's a really good book, Bigfoot Falls. I have one more. Okay. It's from, let me tell you, since I didn't, it's from Them, They Come at Night by Tom Lyons. All right. My name is Elsa, and I had a frightening experience in the autumn of 1996. I graduated from the University of Vermont that past spring and remained in Burlington until I got a job elsewhere. I've always thought of Vermont as one of the most beautiful states, but I have also heard stories from a wide range of people about how haunted it is. I never took many of those stories too seriously since I hadn't had any of my own experiences that could be considered paranormal. I was on my way to a vacation home that a friend's parents had rented her for her birthday. It was pretty far on the outskirts of town and I promised I'd bring her favorite orange wine to celebrate. Each of her friends was responsible for bringing one of her favorite foods or desserts. Great idea. (laughs) And I ended up with the hardest thing to find. Don't be surprised if you've never heard of orange wine. Most stores don't carry it today. So it was even more challenging to find back in the 90s. My friend told me that there was a small grocery store only a little out of the way that sold it. And the route took me on a very dark and lonely path. I might have passed a total of two other vehicles once I got off the main roads. I was happy to locate the store and even more delighted to have acquired what I had come in for. But something incredibly creepy occurred after I pulled out of the small parking lot. This happened before everyone had a mobile phone with GPS service. (laughs) So I often had to rely on intricate fold-out maps and other people's directions to get anywhere I had ever been. Um, As I was pulling up to a stop sign, I saw a man wearing a a backpack walking in the same direction that I was heading. There wasn't a lot of room between the street and the foliage, which made me a bit nervous while passing him. The road bent just beyond where he currently walked. So I was hesitant to move into the other lane due to the slight chance that another car could be approaching from the opposite direction without my knowing. I was probably, so she's in a weird predicament. (laughs) I was probably only going about five miles per hour as I approached the roadside trucker. And he soon stopped and turned around to face me. At first, he had a friendly look in his eyes, but something about it was almost overly friendly, like it could be fake. The closer I got to him, the more psychopathic he appeared. (laughs) I highly doubt I would have stopped to let him in my car, regardless, since I heard so many horror stories about that exact scenario. 
but this but that strange look on his face sealed the deal. I started to speed up the moment he put his thumb in the air because I didn't want there to be any indication that I was going to give him a ride. <laughs> it got to the point where I could tell no other cars were approaching from the other direction. So I stepped on the gas to make my way out of there as quickly as possible. That roadside stranger gave me such a chilling feeling just from looking at him. His dated outfit made it seem like he was from a different time. His appearance was very ghostly. Initially, I couldn't make sense of why things felt so off after I had driven away from the man. But when I looked in, the rear, in my rear view mirror, my chest instantly tightened up. The guy was running after my car and he looked angry. I was already driving maybe 35 miles per hour when I spotted the man in the mirror. So I couldn't understand how he matched pace with that speed. It was horrifying to watch his legs move that quickly. It just looked so otherworldly. For obvious reasons, I couldn't help but panic and drive at a speed much too fast for that narrow winding street. I vividly remember muttering, this can't be happening. This can't be happening. <laughs> there were times when I thought I would run off the road because the creepy follower didn't appear to be slowing down. Panicking the most I ever had, I slammed the horn, desperately hoping it would deter, deter the mysterious man from coming to follow me. It didn't work. All that it seemed to do was aggravate him even more, and I immediately noticed him getting closer to the rear of my vehicle. I couldn't help but cry. I thought the guy was about to climb onto my car and break inside through my rear window. I knew it would be all over if he got his hands on me. It quickly escalated into one of those moments where my life flashed before my eyes. I remember thinking about future moments with family and friends I would miss. I even thought about how the police report would likely never inform anyone who knew me about what truly happened. And thinking about that left me with a sense of anxiety for everyone who might have died in similar circumstances. I'm so glad that this didn't happen in the winter for the roads would have been icy and I wouldn't, I would have had to drive much slower, thus allowing the psychopathic man to catch up with me easily. If you've ever been to Vermont in winter, you probably know how dangerous the roads can be. There's simply no way I would have been able to drive at the speed I was going if there had been snow or ice on the asphalt. I definitely would have either barrel rolled my car, driven off a cliff, or collided with a tree. It makes me wonder if any accidents of that type in that type of harsh climate involve something like what I was experiencing that awful night. I was almost in disbelief when the man visibly started to slow down. Another strange thing was he didn't appear exhausted during the few seconds he remained in my rear view mirror. It looked more like he lost interest and returned to a casual stroll, like when I first spotted him back near the stop sign. Once he was out of sight, I instantly began questioning how what I saw could be a reality it made me feel a sense of vulnerability I had never experienced. I suppose you could say it made me feel like any crazy thing could happen at any moment, something I could never possibly prepare myself for. 
I should also probably mention how I've never had any history of mental illness. <laughs> Everyone <laughs> likes to always say that in their account. <laughs> and there hasn't been anything like that since the incident. But I think it's interesting how I almost craved some diagnosis that would indicate I was mistaken about what I witnessed on the street that night. Sometimes I wonder if it would provide a sense of security that I simply no longer feel. That must sound insane to some, but it proves how much I wish that ter terrifying event had never occurred. Since most people seem to make it through their entire lives without ever dealing with something like that, I truly yearn to be just as oblivious as them. It would make it a lot easier to fall asleep every night. I had decided not to tell anyone at the party about my experience. It took a lot of strength to hold back, but I was worried it would steal the spotlight from my friend on her birthday make people think I was mentally ill or both. I think it took me a long time to talk about anything that happened that night because some of me wondered if I had encountered a demon. I was very close to my grandmother while growing up and she was very religious. She often talked about how anything that gave me a bad feeling was a warning sign that the devil was nearby. I remember her saying things about how demons were always around and it was up to us to disregard them so that we diminish their power. I wouldn't go as far to say that I always took those words seriously. However, the terrifying encounter instantly made me speculate whether she was on to something real. I believe, it I believe it was because of that that I was reluctant to do or say anything that might provoke something else to happen again. Just the thought of having crossed paths with that creepy man on foot gives me goosebumps every time. Honestly, I had to be careful about how much I even thought of all of that to prevent myself from getting nasty anxiety attacks. I even remember being in a grocery store late at night a few weeks after the encounter, and I started getting really scared about how I was one of the only people in there to wonder if people like that man could be around me at all times awaiting a perfect opportunity to attack all without my knowing until it was too late <laughs> that i mean that's that's just like a weird account like did she that i mean that's just weird like you're in the middle of nowhere you know you're in the middle of nowhere a dark country road where there's not really any cars or anything you see a guy walking you kind of have to slow down because the road's narrow, so you slow down. Yeah. Like sticks is fun, you know, hitchhiking, and you're like, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. I really like that, especially at the end where she was like, it's like smashed her view of reality. Like her security right. is like, if something like that could happen, what else can happen, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah. Now, anytime you're like somewhere where it's like, yeah, she's like, is anyone else around me? Yeah. Like, weird. Like, wow. But being chased by a regular looking guy and he's yeah. keeping up with the car. That's <laughs> <laughs> like scary. Oh, God. Good thing he got bored. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, I wonder. Good if, stuff. <laughs> I wonder if. Uh, 38 special and that would is he bulletproof too if he could run that All right <laughs> hey she, she's one of the ones didn't that didn't shoot the 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy. All right. All right, we did it. Yep. We, it. we will be back. <laughs> Absolutely. There you have a good night. You too. Bye. Bye. I'll